0: morning sunday morning welcome to the podcast that's how we introduce it now it's pod america i will just try to stop the world from killing itself it's a goth podcast that i now i nancy pelosi and donald trump are goth is what i'm saying all right hi i'm jake alex is here
1: hi i'm the diane feinstein of the left alex patak
0: you lose your goddamn mind Anders Lee, hello.
2: Should have been there on a Sunday morning, Anders Lee here.
0: That was like, was like Soundgarden or some shit. That's
2: uh, oh. uh Creed. Oh, no. <laughs> which is uh, the, I didn't realize it when I listened to it. A lot of people didn't, but that they were talking about going to church. That was <laughs> that was what the
0: song was about. Yeah, it's a Creed song. We're about a, Sunday about a little man
2: named Jesus Christ.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> they had a well, song like, about... so many
2: people were you know, like, "Yeah, Creed, let's get fucked up and Creed." Which, like, it, <laughs> it was it's a Christian <laughs> rock band. No,
0: where are you from? That their most openly Christian band found of all down? time. <laughs>
1: They're very straightforward about this. They're always T-posing.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, we- yeah.
2: I feel like a lot of people listen to them, though, and we're not necessarily <laughs> down with Jesus. That didn't, you know. Which, well, I hope <laughs> not. With- Is he talking about being Christ when he's like, i sacrifice
0: I think so. This
2: is he, a whole nother episode. He also okay. says it's a whole with, episode we're going to do.
0: With arms wide open, that's him T posing on the cross, arms right?
2: Wide open. Yeah, He thinks he's Jesus, which checks out with his recent activity. You know, I think on it's the so, he's
1: hugging his son. But you know, who else had a son it is God. Yeah, true.
0: You know who else had he a son? He died For our sins. The CIA had a little baby child, uh, sort of defense. <laughs> department thing in Mexico. It's not really their I'm son. I'm waiting for
2: you to remember the name. Yes. They, <laughs> they, were, well, they have a secret Mexican son that a lot of people don't know
0: about. Yeah, no, they have a, like, an illegitimate child in Mexico that's Mexican <laughs> yeah. named the FDS, which I forgot what it stands for. Um, <laughs> but we're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about the Mexican deep state. The deep state. Mexican style, el depot stato. The uh, yeah,
1: strap on your guitar because we're going down south.
0: La guitarra. I'm doing Duolingo again. Uh, el autobús es en fuego. Uh, los estudiantes son muerto Muerte? I don't know. Um i'm from texas fuck off okay uh, what is duolingo's position on the murdered college students that little owl is very right wing it's the like, disturbing he's uh really he's, he works for the cia obviously cia funded owl. yeah
2: that's that is a great place for them to, to monitor right they can see who's learning a language they can tell where they're gonna go if you're a radical are you gonna go south of the border are you gonna go to you know Kurdistan or something.
0: You know what's funny about that? Um, you say like in movies you see these like Pete Buttigieg characters that are like I worked for the deep state and I learned 19 languages in like a year or whatever which is like not possible and in reality <laughs> well actually I don't know how true this is because I read it in like a like a Tim Wiener CIA book and he's not a very good writer about the CIA but he wrote a lot about it and like one of the things that apparently happened in uh, the CIA or the FBI Leading up to like the uh, the war on terror was just like a, a drastic like um, what do you call it scarcity of people who spoke the languages of the countries we we're invading mm. because it's not actually that easy to just learn Arabic or something overnight. Who the fuck
1: it? Yeah. <laughs>
0: so what you have is you have well,
1: you only sh- have to learn a few key phrases. Don't destr las armas. Yeah. You know, get those ready. Where's the where's the toilet? Stuff like that.
2: Well, I'm pretty sure Kermit Roosevelt didn't know Arabic when he he uh, got that coup in Iran. You know, they sent him over there. They literally just gave him an office in the U.S. Embassy. We do a bonus episode about it. But he, uh, oh yeah, was able to stage a coup. I just, I guess, just one guy who knew English, and he
0: talked to him, and that's that's how he did it. No, he had the Duolingo he app a open. Universal language. <laughs> he was running yeah. around it was
2: just a constant like uh like fucking telegrams it's like every translation you yeah, had, yeah yeah
1: what's the 1950s version of google translate <laughs> just up all times
0: <laughs> a, a guy who's really bad at arabic who you you say a word to and he says like video recorder back to you or something
1: Yeah, before Google Translate, we had Raul Translate. (laughs) Yeah,
0: Yeah. or or I guess just an old-timey robot. It's just like... uh, Linguo
2: from The Simpsons. Yeah, yeah. Remember Linguo? Yeah. Remember
0: Linguo? Linguo. Well. All right, well, let's introduce uh, our guest. That
1: kind of reminds me of this interview we just did. (laughs) Yes.
0: (laughs) Yes. <laughs> all right. I, this is a this was a great interview. I'm very excited about it. Uh, strap in. You are about to learn about uh, the history of uh, the deep state in Mexico and its relations to the deep state in the U.S. Uh, and how that plays into all of Mexican history, running from the Revolution way back at the turn of the century, uh, all the way up through the 20th century and to today. And uh, you know. You're going you're gonna to meet some falcons, enchilada. some snowmen, uh, <laughs> some weird 70s Operation Condor people. It's fun. Yeah, the whole enchilada. That's fun. That's a good way to put it. Salud. Bien. Uh, yeah. Good.
2: All right, we are now joined by a uh, fellow clown of mine, Francisco Benavides, who I actually we actually met uh, before either of us was into clowning, right? And that and we discovered it sort of independently. Uh, but he is, of course, a trained clown and a trained puppeteer, right? Yep. And uh, many things. A researcher. He's now working on a uh, stage play about uh, Mexican history and the CIA's involvement in Mexico, which is a fascinating topic. Uh, Francisco Benavides, thank you for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me. And like all things, I got to say, all things clown, that play is really uh, going off the rails in terms of uh,
1: topic, but it starts with that. (laughs) Okay. Good. All workers are clowns in a way. Clowns for the capitalist class.
0: There you go. Mm,
2: truly. We're beautiful idiots. Yes. Of the. And yes, class consciousness is a. Don't a think about it too hard. <laughs> 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 yeah.
0: It's a um, gag. <laughs>
2: so there's a storied history here. There's a lot of stuff going on. Uh, the CIA is originally called the OSS, the OSS. It's originally what they called it. I don't know if you people know this, but it was OSS. They would refer to it as OSS. Uh, John Osoff possibly was, you know, an op. Um, that's why he's named that. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> there's so many places to start with this. Um, well, why don't I guess we begin by asking what made you interested in this personally? What what kind of sparked the uh, the fascination, the the research project that you embarked upon? in finding out about the uh, USA and Mexico? Um,
3: It would be personal, I would say. My family didn't experience, uh, like they weren't armed guerrillas or anything, but most people of that era experienced some amount of interaction or hardship due to the authoritarian state of the country at that point. Um, And the secret, I mean, there was like secret police being very repressive, regardless of what you were doing. And both my parents had experiences with it that they're really hush about. So it started just, wanting to know like what happened and and like how we got to where we are today Hmm. i guess i'd add too i mean i grew up in the u.s and they don't teach you mexican history unless it's like how much the u.s has kicked ass in relation right Right. yeah it was this aspect of self-education of like i I mean i mean i feel very mexican
2: as well and it was like i gotta read about this shit because it's fucking wild (laughs) indeed yeah uh well i should mention too uh I think we. I mentioned this to you. Jake is related to a Mexican revolutionary anarchist, right? From yeah. back in the day.
0: Yeah, he rolled We're with the. On, right? No, actually, it's what? confusing because my name's Flores, but uh, my great 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 grandfather is named Juan Jose Arredondo, and he worked <laughs> with the Mor- Flores Miguelon brothers, but different name. Took over um, uh, Juarez for a day. Nice! Wow! Yeah, just one of those wild coincidences, like John
1: Osoff and the OSS. That can't be a coincidence, <laughs> man. That's,
0: no, he's named after it. His parents named him named after the <laughs> OSS. They gave like, him a la- new last name.
2: <laughs> that's as secret agents are wont to do.
0: Yeah, uh, they didn't want to be just,
2: affiliated with their baby. <laughs> maybe he swapped. Maybe someone in the OSS swapped your last name with uh, with the other guy. Uh, That's possible, Hmm. but uh, there's so many places to start, but um, like so many things, we love to talk about the 30s as leftists. That's a fascinating time uh, and one we we wish we were still in 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 America in many ways, Uh, just politically, not necessarily economically. But yeah, I'm uh, not sure that's true in terms of the starving (laughs) and (laughs) and stuff, but the potential for revolutionary uh, action, if you will. Sure. Um, But that's kind of Francisco, you were saying that's sort of where the beginnings of um, Mexican, you know, authoritarian power that you were describing. That's that's sort of where it uh, kicked off in a way with the um, with the foothold on power gained by a party that would soon be known as pre. Yes. Uh, PRI. How did that go down?
3: I I should add it's just a very ironic name because it stands for the Party of Revolutionary, the Revolutionary Institutional Party, which (laughs) uh, makes no sense. Um, I should add to just super quick. America has been involved in Mexico from like the beginning. Before the revolution, it was with like the Porfiriato and it was mainly based on American, like America owning large amounts of Mexican capital and industry. Mm. After the revolution, it becomes more of a relationship of intelligence. Um, that's the take, the quick take I'd have. So after the revolution, I mean, it is it is concurrent with the Soviet revolution, although it had very different outcomes in a lot of ways. So concurrent, uh, this was in
2: uh, the late 19-teens?
3: Yeah, and okay. it wrapped up
2: later, but
3: it, it was around the same
2: time. And this is also after we went down there to get Pancho Villa and there was some bad blood there. And Yeah. yeah.
3: And he, I mean, he was one of the, he was like the Northern leader of a lot of like the revolutionary forces. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was it was a lot. I would think it's a lot messier than the Russian Revolution, if that's uh, even possible to say.
0: <laughs> it's a cool story, uh, man. Everyone should read about it. It's fucking fun. Yeah,
3: and we. I mean, uh, I could get caught up in that, but th- it happens, and we're just gonna ignore <laughs> it. Uh, and the the pretext po- uh, power. The uh, pretext power in 1929, and th- that's some pretty interesting stuff that happens early on, because it's much more of a left party at that point still. Like, it's nominally a left party. Um, but they had a quite left president, Lázaro Cárdenas, who's super famous. They industrialized, or they nationalized a lot of industry. Uh, a lot of the reforms, land reforms promised in the revolution were happening to some degree, mm. but it ends up stalling pretty quick. And what happens is the pre I mean, like quick take on the pre it's an authoritarian party. It's, they call it like a, the one party dictatorship because essentially, each president at some point starts handing off the presidency to a selected, like, successor. They pick them, they run for office, and they win. It just happens like that for 75 years. Uh, and it becomes increasingly authoritarian until it peaks in the, I would say, 60s, 70s. And then things change. But um, I would start with, so the, that's the pretty in the 30s. In 1945, like, um, Aleman Valdez is the president at the time. He takes power and seeing like the changing relationship to the U.S. and the world with the Cold War, he decides to create a new intelligence agency. Um, Although it's both like, it is both kind of like the CIA and the FBI and just secret police. Like it's a little bit different than American intelligence agencies, but it's called the DFS, Dirección Federal de Seguridad, the Director of Federal Security. And it has a storied history that I think is the most interesting for examining um, Mexico's relationship to the CIA because from the beginning of the DFS, it is founded uh, and with inspiration taken from the FBI and the CIA. And they have input from those agencies and its creation in terms of its mandate, its tactics, uh, like in terms of what they're just gonna be doing in general. Although the key difference is the DFS uh, is entirely involved with internal affairs and it's entirely involved with doing surveillance on and repressing subversive actions and particularly communist and socialist organizations in Mexico.
2: Mm. So it's kind of like the FBI. Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
1: Um, Do you think it has the same kind of mandate that the CIA has in the United States where it's this unelected body of officials who essentially make their own policy designations? Or do you find them... Like, do, do they... Do you feel like the DFS is uh, uh, underneath the Mexican government or that it is more like unilaterally along the other intelligence agencies in America?
3: Uh, well, I would say it is an extension. You, the case can be made that it is an extension of the CIA into Mexico or the CIA by a different name. People make that case. Interesting. Um, I, I think I'm not I haven't read enough to decide on one side or the other, but there's strong evidence to say that, like, as we'll get to uh, the CIA through the DFS has the ear of multiple presidents where they give they give security briefings to the Mexican president at certain times in their history. So hmm. um, at that, I would say, to
1: answer your question, I guess, um, well, I forgot your question, I'm sorry. Was <laughs> <laughs> anybody in control of these people at any point is all I want or to know. <laughs> yeah. uh,
3: nominally, I mean, so the DFS is under the control of the Secretary of Gobernación, uh, what would that be like, Secretario de Gobernacion? It's it's a it's a very powerful cabinet uh, position, so they report to the Secretario de Gobernacion, which reports to the president. Um, but they also have direct communication with the president at various times through CIA contacts. Uh, so sometimes, specifically when we get to Winston Scott, uh, I would say the DFS is pretty autonomous in a lot of ways.
0: So yeah, two things about that, right? Cause like you say, like nominally they report to this one cabinet position in the presidency, but in practice, like, isn't the kind of thing understood about just the entire Mexican government or especially around the 20th century, like the, it's just extremely corrupt. Like you're saying, like there's open succession basically with the presidency yeah. and stuff. So nominal, I guess is like a word that's pulling a lot of weight in that sentence, right? Um, and then the other thing I was going to say, just to answer that, I just, to I guess not to answer that question, but to, to ask another question. Um, so some people will tell you that the American deep state is kind of, uh, the seeds of it were based on like trying to catch up with the Russians because the Russians obviously had all these like crazy code breaking skills and shit like that. And we were entering into a cold war. Um, but those two things kind of make sense because these are two, Superpowers that are beginning to compete with each other, and yeah. uh, they have their little spider arms all over the country, and are you know locked in this like global battle with each other. Mexico is not an imperialist state, really. So t- to have something like a deep state, it's going kind to of function differently in the same way that the entire Mexican government functions differently, which is not. You know an expansive neoliberal project it's just this thing that just has to like exist and operate in relation to the united states that it's directly under yeah um is that maybe just another factor that's going to lead to this being a wildly out of control deep state operation
3: uh definitely and so as an example uh we'll get to winston scott again but like he had an operation of having these paid agents in the mexican government so the head of the dh dfs the head of uh, Segob and the president at different times or at certain times were all paid agents of this operation for the CIA. So like every level of this command is cooperating with the CIA uh, and they're getting paid by it. There's like interesting communications where people are like, you're paying them too much. And he's like, it's fine.
0: <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> it's it's really Mexico. Petty. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. They're like, don't worry about it. I got it. Just leave me alone. Um, another interesting thing to take, like to consider is, so when the DFS is starting to do a lot of its work, I would say it's, it's something I haven't read as much about, but it's probably dealing with the tail end of the, like, the diminishing conflicts after the Mexican Revolution because it, like the Mexican Revolution ends, but there are um, armed struggles happening. I mean, essentially to this day in the countryside and mm-hmm. they become part of the armed guerrilla movements. And a lot of what the federal police and these intelligence agencies were doing was trying to suppress them because they were often um, mm-hmm. quite far left. And one of them in particular is like this guy named Ruben Haramillo, who uh, was like 15 when he was in the revolution, like, Zapata, and is pushing, you know, in the 50s for the government to follow through on his promises of land reform, because they started and then they stopped, and they just never went all the way. And he starts leading these like revolts in the countryside in Oaxaca, and he starts his own political party and runs for office, and it fails, and it's most likely because of like election rigging and stuff like that, because he was beloved. Uh, But it kind of culminates in the 50s. uh, Well, in the 60s, actually. But in the 50s, they start actively taking repressive measures, and uh, they just outright kill him in the 60s, like before what leads up to kind of like the 68 student protests. The other thing that happens is that there's these massive uh, railway strikes in the late 50s. So like labor has like some amount of power in the country at that point because it is still getting out of the revolution and uh, one of the things they do with these two labor leaders who in lead the railway strike is that they imprison them and they throw them in this famous prison because all these fucking countries have to have like a famous kind of aesthetically interesting prison or some shit um, they throw <laughs> them in there and at the end of, of um, I think it was uh, Gustavo Ordaz's president. Gustavo
2: Frank? Sorry. <laughs> no. Um,
3: and, So it's, like, pretty, like, what happens in the 40s and 50s is pretty minor. It's, like, kind of dealing with these, like, the messy stuff after the revolution and, like, essentially trying to suppress labor. Uh, But it really starts to pick up in the late 50s with these railway strikes and with, like, Jaramillo because it starts to segue into this new wave of armed guerrilla movements that take hold in the 60s and are really uh, bolstered specifically by the Cuban revolution. Mm. And... the the government, like, wasn't even in consensus in some ways because, like, former president Lazaro Cardenas, like, visits Fidel Castro and, like, hails the Cuban Revolution as a success. While the rest of the party is, like, fuck no, we have to stay away from that and we have to do our best because they're trying to maintain a relationship with the United States, obviously. Uh, but it does make me- uh, Mexico a really interesting strategic place for intelligence for the U.S. because the Cuban and Russian embassies become heavily surveyed and uh, bugged in mexico by the united states
2: Mm.
3: often like the people physically doing it are the dfs but um the united states is helping
2: right because we don't want a communist government like directly to our our southern border yeah and
1: a Um, a, a bigger communist government directly to our southern border (laughs) uh
2: well that so the I mean, there's so many uh, Mexico's, so to speak. There's, as you were mentioning, there's different, you know, areas that are contested even today. But um, was the sort of the mood generally uh, sympathetic with the Cuban Revolution, uh, wanting more worker power, or was there a, a popular um, foothold at all that the that this the ruling party had? Where did they have a lot of popular legitimacy, or was it just everybody sort of just was? Um, Wanted something better, was but was accepting that that they were in charge.
3: Uh, I mean, I think early on they had a lot of legitimacy. Adolfo Lopez Mateos, who begins the relationship with the CIA, is all in all a very popular president still, even though he was the guy in charge of repressing like uh, Ruben Haramilla and the railway strikes.
2: Um, and is so, that kind of because of the land reforms you were talking yeah. about? Okay, so Lopez
3: Mateos provide like presides over like some of the implementation of land reform. Um, again it's not as anywhere near as complete or like robust as was supposed to happen but he also like creates I mean they call it the Mexican miracle which is this very capitalist period of like growth that is concentrated you know wealth grows immensely but it's concentrated in the ruling elite Mm -hmm. Uh, but the perception of it you know gives him enough uh, like in popularity where I mean I don't think people really catch hold of what's happening with I mean the stuff about like his relationship to the CIA doesn't see light until like decades later. Uh-huh. But at the time, like the PRI, I think, is still viewed as legitimate and the country is growing. And because of that, I think there's there's a relative stability. And that changes in part because people begin to see the pattern of like how the PRI is maintaining power through electing successors. Because at this point, like in the 40s and 50s, it's still a relatively new party. And it, you could see it that like it's just beloved because it's the, the party that that took hold after the revolution. But... Right as it's continuing to maintain power and kind of shift ideologically, because I don't think that pretty has an ideology at this, like maybe early on it did, but at this point it's ideology is the maintenance of power in the country
2: mm.
3: uh, and whatever that entails is what they'll do. Essentially. It just, it aligns with capitalism and later neoliberalism. Um, but like the late fifties into the sixties is when there starts to be um, kind of more of an awareness of how authoritarian the country is growing because of things like the railway union uh, strike repression because of uh, the killing of Ruben Jaramillo, who was like a beloved folk hero. And again, like he is, he is himself a piece of legacy from the revolution, which people hold, I mean, people hold it in high regard, even though when they talk about it specifically, they they also talk about how much of a mess it is and how uh, ill, like ill implemented a lot of the intended reforms were. Um, So when this happens and then the Cuban revolution happens, it really like awakens this fervor of like, we can continue this revolution. We can push it further. We can end the authoritarian uh, regime. And it starts to take hold, like kind of in two different theaters of like, there's the the way it takes hold in the rural communities and the way it takes hold in the universities. And Mm. especially with like 68, it has a lot more to do with the students. But in the 60s, like what happens is that um, there starts to be, you know, there there are teacher strikes where they're trying to negotiate, like teachers and students, are trying to negotiate es- essentially like more democratic like direction over the universities because they're very important for uh, a lot of a lot of different things for the country that are. I mean, I think parallel to the United States, but in some ways different. But all these universities. Well, where you keep all your rowdy boys? <laughs> <laughs> keep the rowdy. Well, and they're pipelines to the more powerful positions in government, at least some of these universities are. Um, and there's not as many as the United States. So there's like two or three where it's like if you're a student here and you're part of these student organizations, more than likely you will be ending up in government with these powerful positions. Um, so they' like the universities are part of the like the pipeline, like the pre-pipeline, <laughs> the the university the pre-pipeline, let's call it pipeline right plant
1: yeah.
3: oh and which, what's how you which, say
0: skull and bones in spanish yeah they, they're doing a bunch of that shit they're doing yeah, skull yeah. and bones rituals except the skull and bones has like cool paint on it like a calavera but it's right. the same shit
1: <laughs> yeah <And it's laughs> crazier they're jacking off on a beautifully de- uh, decorated geronimo skull
0: <laughs> yeah
1: like imagine if like skull and bones had a rival
3: secret society but they actually would engage in, in like, armed conflict on campus. Because that happened in Mexico, in various universities. And that's When I talked to my dad, because he was living in Guadalajara, when uh, there was a, a communist student group that formed, and these, like, s- local government-sponsored university students uh, were given military rifles to open fire and essentially try to exterminate these, like, revolutionary student groups. Like it's, yeah, it goes all the way
1: down to the universities and they become very important for that for that reason. Um, Wasn't so th- that like a big recent news story from a few years ago that they uncovered all these bodies in the desert? I don't know if this is coming up later. If
3: we're yeah, yeah. There a lot
2: of bodies in the desert. Ayotzinapa, <laughs> the,
1: the,
3: the, the disappearance of the Ayotzinapa students. And they're interesting because they come from a region. I mean, they were part of a Normalista school, which is a, a Marxist rural school for like training Marxist teachers in the rural parts of, the, of like Guerrero and Oaxaca, which have always been some of the most rowdy, rebellious parts of the country. They're also ones with like some of the largest indigenous communities and indigenous heritage. And those things go hand in hand with repressing indigenous communities that are Marxist and want land reform. Like, I mean, Chiapas has that same pattern in the nineties up to today. And and Chiapas, Guerrero, Oaxaca are just like a hotbed.
1: Wasn't the story for that, that they had like a, uh, a, uh, like the cartel, the mayor paid the cartels to get rid of them, or something.
3: Yes, uh, and I mean, in th- that pattern, I think the interesting thing is that pattern starts in the '60s with CIA. Well, it starts in, in the '70s actually, but it starts like with the relationship of the CIA and the DFS to the burgeoning cartels, specifically the Guadalajara cartel. Um, and I haven't seen it, but apparently, Mexi- not Mexico actually covers some of this period.
1: Ooh, so interesting.
3: Maybe- maybe watch that I'm watching and i'm learning it's about caro quintero who was like the godfather of the mexican drug cartels and he had a very intimate relationship with the dfs and some say the cia uh i mean definitely i don't i can't tell you i don't have enough <laughs> like i haven't done enough reading to give you like the, the, the receipts but sure. Fucking come on
1: right. um, they, they started the sport of college student shooting
2: <laughs> well, I remember, I wonder if they'll make an... Uh, they made Narcos, Mexico. I wonder if they'll make an animal house, Mexico, about the different college, mm. you know, armed yeah. frats and...
0: Belushi yeah, getting shot by the government and stuff—that'll be fun.
1: <laughs> yeah, get your pitch ready, Hollywood.
3: <laughs> like a frat starts running guns to fund right. their parties and things to get out of hand. Uh.
1: Reboots are in right now, you guys. This could be this could be some real money coming in.
0: Revenge yeah. of the <laughs> Nerds, featuring <laughs> Bullcutter.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but like oh, leading MoCo. up to sixty-eight.
0: <laughs> El Moco. <laughs> He's like a gangster.
2: Pluto. <laughs> <laughs> there There are these like, yeah, these inter uh, student organization conflicts, but I believe the military, right is is also invading certain campuses. Isn't yeah. that happening in the in the lead up to 68?
3: Oh yeah, I mean, even before that, there's like waves of different kinds of protests and strikes yeah, r- involving universities. And then like in 68, the first major stuff that starts happening, is first there's like two different, one of these like inter-student group conflicts that is broken up by um, like Mexican military and they severely injure and, and potentially kill a few students. in it. then the, the first protest is about the the involvement of these those, uh, granaderos in in that conflict. And it starts to escalate slowly where even before uh, Tlatelolco, there's something called, um, well, actually there's something called the, what was it, el pasucaso, which I fucking love the way we, we make like cute names for shit, but this is a terrible event. Uh, El Caso <laughs> is um, students are occupying one of the other big universities in Mexico uh, City, Instituto Politecnico Nacional, IPN, um, is what I'll call it from now on. And so they're occupying it and the military just starts opening fire on these students uh, and they start fleeing or like kind of barricading themselves. And this like, this university has this like ornate, wooden door There's like one of these huge old wooden doors because it's an old building and the uh, the military shoots a bazooka around at it and like destroys it and it becomes this kind of emblem of like the military uh starting to get involved in university politics and there's always i mean like there's always this idea in mexico that the universities are supposed to be autonomous and have like a lot of autonomy from the government which uh,
2: is a lie uh, but uh, all of them are named like Autonomous you, right? The most yeah.
3: famous one, UNAM, is the Universidad Autónoma de Mexico. Huh. Um,
1: Wait, so when you say emblem, there's like you could watch like Mexican Saturday Night Live and they'll be referencing the bazooka blowing up the door. I wouldn't say people are talking about this.
3: It's that well known. I mean, I guess I don't know because I've you know I don't I don't live there right now. But it's certainly when talking about this history, like that is the first big image that people start talking about is El Basucaso and like the doors of San Ildefonso. But it's kind of a niche topic, so I think like among people who are are talking about the topic, you know that'll that'll come up.
1: I got you. Okay.
3: Um, But this leads to protests, and like UNAM has a big one where the the rector of the school leads a protest that grows to about 500,000, no, 50,000 people in Mexico City. Um, and the thing is, with these like, growing protests is the government is trying to discredit them by saying that they're led by communists, they're led by Cubans, by Soviets, they're led by outside agitators, but they don't represent the people of Mexico. So,
1: mm. they have
3: oh, this... I've never heard that before, huh? I know, right? It's fucking, like, yeah. outside agitator shit. So what they do is, to to one, show like their, their organizing capabilities, and to to, like show that they're nonviolent, these students. Um, after so, after um, like rector varios is his name leads that protest. He ends up like chatting with the president, and kind of caves to the president's demand to like try help quell these students. But they form uh, something called the Consejo Nacional de Huelga, the National Strike Committee, and it's like seventy different universities that form this essentially democratic government to organize protests and strikes in the country, um, which. And they start organizing like down to the street level. I mean, we can maybe talk about that another day, but their organizing is really interesting in how they do it at the time. Because like, it also forms kind of the basis for how the later armed guerrilla groups are organized uh, when they come out of the universities. But the point being that there's, uh, the CNH leads uh, this massive thing called the Silent March on September 13th. Uh, A lot of the other stuff, like the bazooka stuff happened in June or July. By September, we're at the Silent March where it's again like, thousands of people are marching silently through Mexico city and arrive at the Socalo, like the main public square, uh, without like making a sound or causing any kind of trouble. And it really sends this message of like, we're organized. We're like, we are not in being led by outside agitators. Like this is a, a, a movement led by students and Mexicans. And we're it gets
1: organized. Like, we're silent.
3: You won't even know we're here, which I mean, it is kind of an amazing feed, especially like at the time. Um, Babies are sleeping. There's like silent. Yeah, yeah, there's well, and there was stuff happening before then, too, where they're like lighting buses on fire and shit.
0: So like there was a lot of noise.
2: (laughs) Yeah.
3: (laughs) You got you got to light a bus on fire every once in a while to get a point across.
0: You got to do that without making
3: any noise. (laughs)
2: Yeah.
3: Sometimes they say. "Um." And so what year is this? Just this, to, so, this is September of 1968. This is like, okay, in the months leading up to, to, to Tlatelolco, there's already stuff. Right.
2: And so, right. yeah, to set kind of the context for, for 1968, this is, of course, we all, uh, many people, of course, know uh, that the Olympics that year was in Mexico City. And we remember the imagery of John Carlos um, and another athlete holding the, the black power fist. Um, <laughs> Roasted that guy.
0: Fred Thompson. Yeah.
2: John Carlos and other man. <laughs> I'm shit. That's bad of me. I'm just. No, no, uh, I'm
3: just not fucking around. Like it happens.
2: John Carlos can, and his friend, who's and uh, two his cool friend. guys <laughs> in a sidekick. Um, <laughs> Tommy Smith. All right,
3: yeah. I'm there watching we go. you Google this so, yeah. live. This is really <laughs> something. I'll get a bit like nitty gritty with dates, and I'll make one correction. And that like the basu caso happens in July. In August, like the, the rector, the let's say the principal of UNAM leads a protest, um, the National Strike Council forms. And then in September is the silent march on 13th. And then on the 24th is when the first violent um, like occupation of a university happens where the mi- military literally starts opening fire and occupying uh, university grounds. And that's the IPN. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's seen as, again, this violation of like university autonomy. I, I know that they occupied spaces in Unan as well. And I think to zoom out a bit from the student stuff, the interesting thing is that because of the relationship between Winston Scott and like and like the Mexican president, like he's offering briefings, CIA briefings about the situation to them. And they're like talking to one another about how serious they think the situation is and, and discussing, again, an American CIA agent and, and like the Mexican president to discuss the level of the involvement of the military at this point and whether or not they need to get involved more. Right. So, so like. It's like who's consulting who at that point. I don't know. It's fucking crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
2: And so, yeah, and you have this stuff. uh, A a big part of why it's happening is because the Olympics are happening in October. Uh, Of course, uh, Tommy, Carlos, and John Smith are getting ready uh, to come to the Olympics. um, JK, but they. This is sort of like Mexico's moment in a way because they've they have been seen in the past as sort of a, a backwards country uh, by the rest of the world. And they want to show, uh, Oh no, we, we can have, you know, events like the Olympics and things will be tame and calm. And to do that, and this is not unique to Mexico at all, basically every, and we, we talked to uh, no Olympics LA about this, basically every city where the Olympics happens, they have to quell unrest, yeah. right? Even if it's in a first world country, uh if it is in a place like brazil sometimes they kill people just you know homeless people in in favelas just to make things seem uh more palatable to the to the rich people coming in uh, and you
1: know i wasn't on that episode but I, after that i really think that they should just move the olympics every time to the top of mount olympus that just makes the <laughs> most sense and then you wouldn't have this problem you could still play hockey or whatever you're going to do david flat keep it up there
0: they made a joke <laughs> about how fucked up the olympics is in the new animaniacs that just came out it's very woke
2: <laughs> is it a song uh, Animaniacs. Uh, nah. i was watching from the 90s their uh their their song about all the countries and they mentioned palestine
0: yeah i think animaniacs
2: is wow. also always been rad, kind of wacko like, um, yeah i like that <laughs> um <laughs> But so, yeah, so so set the stage for us with with the Olympics. Um, what's the yeah. importance of that, and and how does that coincide with uh, the left being uh, sort of smooshed?
3: Yeah, I mean, as you said, like the Olympics are always kind of this uh, like kind of attempt at gaining soft power and and showing your your position in the world. To like, right. but it, it comes at gross public expense, and this is a country again where people are protesting because of like the intense inequality that is like obviously apparent at that point, like huge swaths of the country are underdeveloped and rife with poverty, while there is this very obviously visible ruling elite that is like enriching itself through its relationship, among other things, with the United States. And uh, so there's just a lot of pushback. And it's it's equally like the Olympics and um, the president at the time, which one? I always get confused. It was Ordas, the S. I mean, it's really pushing back against his presidency and the authoritarian nature of it. Um, so, and, and these these student movements building up to them. So it's it's the student movements and the Olympics. It's like really like that's the, the cherry on top. But mm. so what happens is like in October, October 2nd is the massacre of Tlatelolco. It is one of the seminal events in Mexican history. And like this is a cultural milestone, although no one talks about it uh, joyously. Um, but it's you know people have written books about it and, like it's it's just like in the the common the communal the collective unconscious of the fucking country right. uh, because the zeitgeist of the, there you go there you keep it german uh, <laughs> because uh, so there's this another massive like demonstration at this point it's uh, and it, it goes to something called La Plaza de las Tres Culturas, which is this important like cultural space in Mexico, the Plaza of the three cultures, let's say in English. Um, and they're protesting there. And what happens is the, the military forces uh, like fence them in, like close them into this, this plaza. And uh, there's a lot of like stuff we could talk about in the specifics, but essentially students start seeing flares drop from above. And some people right. say it's from a helicopter. Some people say it's from the, like specific places. But what happens is military starts opening fire on this enclosed group of students uh, from a building that is like near the plaza. And interestingly, one of the the men uh, who works for like Operation Le Tempo, this like uh, Mexican CIA, like spy collective, not a collective. uh, (laughs) They have a space. They have a co-op. In Bushwick, yeah. <laughs> so one of the men who is a contact for Winston Scott, I forget the full name, but uh, something Oropesa, is said to have been the man to give the uh, order to fire while he was like in the building and was like, fire on these students. Um, so they fire on these students, and immediately there's this huge wave of confusion where um, the Mexican government is denying that they did this. They say the students shot first. There's all these different contrary accounts that are coming out as to what happened, uh and interestingly, it leads to uh the ouster of Winston Scott, this kind of like super successful CIA chief at the time, because he was so at this point, like connected to these people for Intel that when he starts filing these reports to like CIA headquarters, they're like they see that he he can't be like impartial from these sources and that his like he's just spent a little too much time in mm. doing this. So he eventually has to step down because of it, interestingly. Um but what it cements is is like that in the, the minds of like the students in the country is the, you know, that is authoritarian regime, the country is not gonna concede peacefully necessarily to to demands um, and that they really kind of just like, don't give a fuck is, is, is the, the general feeling where it's like they are, you know, demonstrating their power, putting down student uh, uprisings and and just kind of showing their might at that point. Yeah, I
1: don't really, know a lot about.
3: Uh, sorry, you can,
0: Jake, you go. I was going to say the, the autonomy thing about the schools yeah, is yeah. like a total lie, right? That's like out in the open now.
3: Oh, and so, and one of the other like operations that Winston Scott had at the time is that he had um, like informants in UNAM, uh, like faculty members and students. So he had informants in the university that were also giving him information about the situation leading up to the protest. Yeah.
0: Uh, I like, never, never it, trusted my college professors, I'll tell you that much
1: yeah they might be a cia informant like this only has doubles down all of the previous prejudices i have had against ras they are working (laughs) with the government they don't want you to smoke weed because you're going to figure some stuff out they're bad people
0: yeah i knew my swimming instructor was a fucking spook
1: So if you join the Mexican military, and this question is coming from a place of ignorance, what are you doing besides shooting Mexican college students? Uh, at this point, I mean,
3: not, not much else probably. I mean, you're, besides shooting Mexican students, you're putting down uh, peasant rebellions in the countryside. Uh, shortly after, you're going to start being involved in either uh, destroying drug crops or protecting those drug crops, depending on which agency <laughs> of the government you're working for. Because it gets really stupid. It's,
1: uh, it's getting Game of Thrones-y a little bit. You're just buying and selling soldiers at that point. Yeah. Basically. Mexico yeah, is
0: very I mean, Game of Thrones, especially the revolution stuff, because everyone switches sides so much. It's, it's, uh, oh, yeah. It's yeah.
3: This, the like, succession of various presidents due to assassination during the revolution is real Games of Thrones. Game, games of Thrones.
0: That's the plural of Game it, of it's Thrones. It's really
3: Games yeah. of Thrones. It's,
0: of- <laughs> it's oh, like yeah. Attorneys General
3: yeah <laughs> um so, so after yeah night after uh I, I wish i could talk more about the really like there's a lot of specifics into like what happened and i, I can't talk a ton about it at the moment because i just don't know enough but it leads i mean I, so I was, I was reading this one book called the night of trate because this famous journal, uh, journalist elena poniatowska like the second this happens she just starts interviewing people on the street and recording as much as you can about people's impressions and what they saw to try form some kind of public record about what happens, and like from that perspective, what people start to say, like after it happens, shortly after, is that like, you know, again and again, the left in Mexico has been pursuing uh, nonviolent means to try pursue reform in the country, uh, but, you know, they're not even allowed to run an opposition party, like the the Partido Comunista Mexicana, the PCM, like loses its ability to register at some point, so like. It becomes just nakedly apparent how authoritarian it is because they can't even run an opposition party. Uh, Railway strikes were getting put down, students like this. And what people start to say is that, like, we just got tired and we gave up because, like, violent or nonviolent, they were going to get shot at and killed by the military is what was plainly demonstrated by 1968. And this lack of a nonviolent path to reform in the country is what pushes uh, people in both the rural and, like, in the urban, like, spheres of conflict into into armed conflict. Um, and it really begins with these brigades I've mentioned, where like the CNH, when they were organizing this like strike and organizing on the ground, form, these like kind of individual cells, brigades that were organizing just out on the street, mostly doing like pamphleteering, handing stuff to union workers, handing stuff to people on buses. Um, and what they start to do is use these like brigade structures to start form these autonomous cells that like increasingly. Um, pursue one pursue this program of political education of really like reading i mean there's different kinds of groups that exist in the country at this point and you know there's all kinds of infighting among them as naturally there was in <laughs> in the world of left uh, left politics and they increasingly take two different paths of like the long war or short war uh, for how they'll achieve a revolution in mexico uh, but they start arming themselves and interestingly most of these groups uh, don't pursue relationships I mean, they, they try to pursue a relationship with Cuba, but because of Mexico's kind of strategic importance for, like, everybody, Cuba doesn't want to jeopardize that relationship by providing aid, so they kind of stay out of it. Uh, right. And the, the only country to ever really provide substantial aid to these guerrillas is North Korea, interestingly. They trade. <laughs> they, they
0: trade uh,
1: Juche!
3: They trade and then help fund, like, one small group um, among the many. But all these different small armed groups start to appear in the country and they start to pursue different tactics of, uh, I mean, there's the expropriations, expropriaciones is the famous stuff where they just start uh, robbing banks, robbing like, you know, large industrial companies, just like robbing people to take their money. And they, oh, I mean, I shouldn't say robbing. I honor the fact that it's like taking that money back from the capitalists to fund. redistributing. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, and, and funny enough, a lot of what they're doing at this point is like, publishing, uh, publishing leftist magazines and distributing them, which is an illegal activity at the point and results in people getting killed uh, because they're trying like a lot of what they're doing is trying to uh, um, distribute these things and increase political education, not only among university students, but create a relationship with labor and unions. So they're like going to these factories, which I think is something that happened. I mean, I hadn't read a lot about what happens in France at the same time, but there's a lot of this relationship of like the, the students trying to connect with, uh labor to various success or failure yeah yeah Uh, but part of the failure happens is that like when they go to these uh factories to try talk to these different labor like union leaders and and, like workers uh the government has informants and plants in those factories who will often start shooting on (laughs) site when they see these yeah different points I, i mean i think that's part of the escalation at first it's like arresting them
0: Yo, if you see anyone wearing a backpack or carrying books under their arms, just fucking open fire because it's.
3: (laughs) Yeah, there's. I have read at least one account of a student, or not, it wasn't a student, it was someone who was just. It was. I think they were working at the factory at that point for the purpose of trying to distribute, like, propaganda. And when, like, these agents (laughs) saw them, they just started opening fire. So, like, it's pretty aggressive. I want to make a movie about this. Did
1: you work for. If you work for like a mill, you're just allowed to murder then? Like you there's no rules for you anymore? These t- these people aren't like official agents, right? They just they still work at the mill. Well, no, some of them are agents who
3: get jobs at these factories or like different industrial I,
0: I think after you mow down a student then you go, you show your badge, you go, I was a cop the whole time and you you don't go yeah. back to work, right? You're like I'm going back to the
1: <laughs> I mean, I guess
3: I, I don't know uh, but yeah. Hey guys, hey
0: guys.
1: <laughs> it's been great knowing you guys. I got to kill a college kid. That's why I was here. All right.
3: Yeah. Um, and where was I? Uh, I lost my
2: train. Of well, thought. so during this time and, you know, stretching through, you know, today, basically, you have a lot of um, activity that I think most Americans and probably most Mexicans would consider uh, illegal You know, you have the the narcotics trade and um, carjackings, too, uh, that are being done by CIA and Mexican intelligence assets. Um, Where do we start with that? There's there's so many fun characters with this. uh, Uh, Why uh, cars?
3: I wanna take one step back to cover, there's a second really important sure. massacre that we just need to talk about. When like, so this, there's this there's this combat happening between increasingly armed students and the government and like the tactics that the DFS takes, the architecture of it, uh, the man doing it is one of the paid agents of Operation Litempo, which is Winston Scott's program. Uh, so like they are creating this structure to ex- essentially exterminate armed student groups uh, with the help and information of like the CIA is is like something you could say with with confidence. Um, and one of the, thing, the things they do is they create these paramilitary groups out of like, not necessarily students, but people of like the same age. The most famous one is like Los Alcones, the Falcons. And uh, if you have seen Roma, you have seen the uh, dramatization of this next student massacre because it's like when those people Oh, are doing, yeah. It's called El Alconazo, uh, the Falcon Strike Sounds way cornier. Oh, you. I've seen that it's in
0: Super Smash Brothers, the video game. It's a thing you can do. Falcon yeah.
3: strike. Yeah, you commit a war crime every time you do. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that happens because of like there's this other conflict in Nuevo Leon where these students are pursuing. This is like the successor of Gustavo um, Diaz Ordaz. Echeverria uh, takes over. And he promises reform and uh, democratization. And then when this university in Nuevo León pursues a path of doing that at the university, uh, there's intense repression of it. It leads to a student uh, protest in Mexico City. And they unleash this paramilitary group. Uh, and they open fire on them. And for some reason, they armed these kids with, like, kendo sticks. So there's just photos of people getting beat with, like, bamboo poles Jeez. in Mexico. And it's real weird. Anyway, oh, it- right. That's in the movie. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's fucking... Kendo
0: sticks. Because they have the
3: karate guy in charge of it. It's like equally as important as uh, Tlantelolco. There was more effort to like obfuscate what happened until I think recently. But um, that's like another big one. And then I think that begins... So that's 71. And that begins um, this interesting era for both the intelligence agencies and the student groups. But I'll put that aside. Uh, What happens with the intelligence agency is that they start working with the guadalajara cartel like rafael caro quintero specifically so like miguel nazaro is like the key figure uh he's one of these agents who at the time is not in charge of the dfs but is like a key member he's handing reports up to winston scott and um he's this intermediary between the cia and like the dfs and their activities and the dfs at this point is uh I guess I don't know, like, the kernel of the relationship of, like, chicken and egg, like, who approached who first. Uh, but the, the like, paramilitary groups and the, the DFS start interacting more with the cartels and they start providing, essentially, security as well as giving credentials to some of these cartel members to make them officers of the DFS uh, because they start assisting the CIA, especially later with things specifically like moving arms to the Contras Uh, And and this kind of quid pro quo where, like, in exchange for facilitating arms uh, moving to the Contras, they get to move drugs up into the United States. Um, Right. It's an exchange right there. It's very transactional.
1: This is a classic intelligence move, too, and you can see it. The CIA using uh, American gangsters in Cuba and Italy to kind of just extend uh, uh, their power a little bit farther along. With these people who are already armed to the teeth and trained to kill,
3: yeah, yeah, and and it's like it's highly likely because the tactics that the that the DFS uses to torture and kill student groups is strikingly similar to the tactics later employed by drug cartels in modern times when they kidnap people. Like weird, yeah, like, where'd we, that come we, from? <laughs> they're indistinguishable, actually. Like the 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 disappearing, the torturing, like it, it is it comes from, from the DFS is is more or less how it feels Um, when you read these things. Cause I've read, like, I mean, I've read some harrowing accounts of people going through it and then like you read that and compare it to like what some of the students who died from like Ayotzinapa went through. And it's just like, yeah, this is the same shit. I mean, and now it's, it's like viewed through a different lens, but that relationship really starts
1: in like the mid to late seventies with the CIA, the DFS and the cartels. And, this is, really a, this is a tangent but people are always coming down on cartels as like look at the way they torture people they're barbarians when actually it's a refined torture system the government gave them
0: Yeah, yeah. It'd be funny if the, the cartels are also doing all the wacky early CIA stuff like they have like uh you know bats with lasers on their heads and shit and like uh <laughs> the the shark bombs. Just the at each other's <laughs> yeah. oh, I just
3: want to it's like a lighthearted break going back to the 50s supposedly uh, there's a Mexican uh, spy on behalf of the CIA who steals a Russian satellite. And they talk nice. about it. They, they They break it down. I mean, and this isn't like completely confirmed. There's like differing accounts, but he he lives in Austin now. What? He claimed, yeah, he was, he was expelled for the country. Like he was declared a traitor for some other reason. But this man claims that he uh, stole the Russian satellite when it was like touring through Mexico and that they broke it down, packed it in the suitcases and then like in suitcases, dropped it off at the Mexican, uh, at the American embassy.
0: Oh, that's was, so funny.
3: Sounds <laughs> differ a little from like how, like once it was in the U.S., they said it was in one piece and stuff. Like, different things, but I, I really love
1: the like,
0: <laughs> like it's a, I don't know, like it's a body. <laughs> they chopped it up. <laughs> yeah, so, somebody, it was in
1: one piece again after we put it back together from all the suitcases.
0: Yeah, that was a Lego project at the American embassy. <laughs> They yeah, open like the it briefcase. It so
2: it's made out of Tetris blocks. Yeah. They just... <laughs> oh, <laughs> Anders. Well,
0: Interestingly,
3: at that point, the U.S. didn't know anything about the Russian space program and was like looking for like the American space program was like improved from the knowledge of that stolen satellite.
0: Oh, like, I, I'm sure.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like it really kickstarted our, our push for the space race. And it's, it's specifically cited when people talk about that stolen satellite. Uh, Who's in the guy?
0: Who's the guy in Austin? I wonder if I know his him.
3: Uh, What is it? I wrote it down.
1: Let me look it up real quick.
3: Um, <laughs> Name like Eduardo something Silvetti. Oh
0: my god! I gotta find it.
1: Goes on stage as rowdy Billy Ray. Maybe mm-hmm. you've seen him. He does like impressions of uh,
0: <laughs> Homer Simpson and stuff. I used to live there, and it's you know, it's not that big of a place. I bet I can yeah, find him. maybe you met him. Maybe get him on the show. Yeah.
2: Yeah, <laughs> that'd be cool. Uh, so yeah, the late seventies and all throughout the eighties is like a very difficult and sad time, I would say, for like all of Latin America yeah. uh, because of the U.S. and and the dirty wars. Yeah, um, yeah We just kicked in, right? I mean, like, what's that?
3: Yeah, Operation Condor had kicked in,
2: right? And you got uh, we just passed the 39th anniversary of the El Mazote massacre uh, in El Salvador, where, you know, just a few months after Reagan gets in, he ramps up aid to the Salvadoran government, uh, and the military, and they kill a bunch of people. They kill kids. And uh, until recently, um, and a lot of this goes for for Mexico, too. this stuff has just not been uh, challenged legally. Like the, the people who committed these massacres have been have been free, and yeah. it's only recently in El Salvador that they began a court case. And it's already been going on for like four years, uh, and they depend on the U.S. giving over intelligence and, and documents um, about who trained these people, why they did it, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, has I, not you know to skip forward, but like that—that's one of the things that people expected from amlo is like to go back and revisit 1968 and sort of uh get justice for for the people who were killed and, and in other uh killings too um has he has he delivered on that front or, or are we still kind of waiting for him in
3: some ways i think it's too big of a job for just him to do but interestingly amlo has a file a dfs file because they were surveying him and he was the target so he's yeah. very anti intelligence and he swore that they'd never survey anyone in the country, surveil anyone in the country. Again, who knows how true that is. Um, Dang, but that's opened, cool. He opened up the, so the DFS became defunct in 1985, It transitions into another security agency that like has a lot of holdovers from the DFS. So it's just kind of like, it's got its own spotty history. Um, but it's a new one called, then I forgot the, what it, what it all means, but it's C I S C N. Um, they had this like large archive because they became defunct and now there's another one. But like what AMLO did was declassified essentially all of the CSEN archives so that anyone who was yeah. researching could, could read them, which, I mean, it'd be, it'd be roughly equivalent again to like if, if, if a president declassified all of the CIA or FBI's files and was like here from like a certain period like, right. and just was like, here you go, read all of it. Um, and I think that is a huge, important move. And like even before AMLO, Vicente Fox did create like a kind of show like special com- like what was it Spe- a special prosecution called uh f- was it femsop femosp where like they had this committee that was like reviewing stuff and trying to like give some publicity to everything that happened but they did indict a few like El- Miguel Nazararo the-, the the real linchpin character and then they just dropped it like 2 years later so like nothing important in terms of like reconciling what happened ever really came out of that
1: mm. um and let's and- um circle back to Nazararo
3: yeah, so he like uh, he begins his career in the DFS in 1966. Uh, he has talked a lot, or he's dead now. But he said that he had like an amazing relationship with Winston Scott. Essentially, he was some say he was groomed by Winston Scott's lieutenant George Monroe, who was like ex Ooh. ex FBI uh, at that point CIA, and that they were groomed, he was groomed specifically to be like embedded in the DFS but work as part of the CIA. And he was like he was also like a like a paid CIA operative so like he was even though they're like kind of combined he was also technically part of each organization in different capacities um, he's a horrifying figure he uh, is a name that appears when you read a lot of the testimonials of torture uh, from like the like the 70s because he was one of the people torturing people with like a horrifying amount of relish apparently mm-hmm. uh, and again with tactics, that he learned from the CIA most likely and passed on uh, that were passed on to the cartels at some
1: point. Um, that is how we judge torturers: is how much relishing you do.
0: Yeah, I don't yeah. want to jump ahead, right. but he, he tortured the Falcon and the Snowman. That's fucked up. Yeah. How do you torture a snowman? <laughs> well, you hold a cigarette lighter up to him and see if he starts melting. I've got your nose. <laughs> is eat- I'm gonna eat it. Is there eating his carrots? What happens nose? in that? <laughs> we'll get and to that eventually. Those are CIA code names. I just think it's very funny that there's code names: the yeah, Falcon and funny. the Snowman.
3: <laughs> um, yeah, jump, jumping ahead, like, so he he starts leading. I guess the big stuff. He starts leading this this car ring we talked about, where he he they would steal cars. They would like DFS agents would go as far north as like San Francisco and as far east as like what was it, Texas? I think, and just San Antonio, steal, yeah. yeah, steal luxury cars essentially to use as like for bribes and different kinds of activities
0: I just um, I want to point something out about this because I read a little bit about this before the show that they're not doing carjackings. they're not like like mugging people in the street for their cars no. they're going to dealerships and then saying I want to test drive that car and then just driving the car to Mexico <laughs> which is so uh, we've funny We've
1: all thought about this
0: it's so funny like, and we they like
1: can, all thought of doing this
0: they get away with it it's because like gone and- <laughs> yeah and they're getting away with it because when they cross the border they have government credentials because of the fds so they just flash the car the fucking card and then they get to go in there but and i think it's first of all it's really funny but second of all it's kind of interesting because it's not carjacking it's not really committing crimes against like american citizens it's it's against the, the source you know the car company or whatever the dealership
2: yeah
3: yeah. And eventually like cars start, you know, cars start being stolen from the US and some start coming back in loaded with weapons or drugs or those cars are often again used to transport uh, stuff further south and as bribes and that kind of thing. Uh, and the interesting thing is that like at this point, the DEA and the FBI start pursuing uh Nassararo, but he has such Im- immunity from it because anytime they s- pursue too hard, they hit a roadblock and there's a CIA agent who's like, he's an asset. Don't fuck with him. Uh, and at some point, it reaches like he is, I think, indicted, and then he just flees the country, and nothing happens. Uh, but there's an interesting chapter where like a U.S. attorney, like, accidentally outs him as as like Lee Li Temple Twelve, which is his code name in like the operation. And Reagan fires the guy for outing like a CIA asset who was also like a notorious criminal, head of a Mexican intelligence agency. And the fact that like his name had that much power really speaks to to a lot. And like he he. Achieves this position where because he has so much, he's such an intermediary for all these groups. They talk a lot about like how he could graymail people because he could just always, he always had something on someone at this point, and that really perpetuated his 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 like reign as a key figure.
0: Yeah, that seemed to be like uh, a key defense, uh, sort of not tactic, but just like a, a tool that would be potentially his arsenal. Could you explain a little bit what graymailing is in this sense? It's not blackmail. I mean,
3: I. I yeah it's more like it's like it's like a a kind blackmailing it's it's more like (laughs) just threatening to like talk to, to what you know to different agencies i mean it seems like it's like blackmail but maybe it's not as public or it's just like okay well i have this relationship
0: yeah. So he's so in d-
1: blackmail then
0: okay yeah <laughs> he, he just seemed like he was in this unique position where he's he's like the nexus of this drug running thing and his relationships with cartels and the, and the CIA and no one could really mm-hmm. fuck with him because he's like I will tell the other person that I'm doing fucked up shit with that. I'm doing this fucked up shit with you and then I'll tell you about them and then the whole thing will get fucked up. So everyone leave me alone or something. We're all
1: going to be told on. I love that Reagan fired a guy over this because that guy had a hole the size of a golf ball in his brain the entire time he was in office. And for someone to even explain this, they probably like drove him a stolen car. For him to even like
0: wrap his mind around it. <laughs> Are you telling me he tortured the snowman? We've got to get him. <laughs> There's I love other that.
2: interesting. Go ahead.
0: Uh, um, go ahead. I was done. Well, I was just
2: <laughs> oh. so Reagan is, uh, yeah, a very important figure, of course, in in this history, because um, there is, yeah, as we mentioned, this clandestine sort of operations happening in Mexico. Uh, that they're just okay with the carjacking. And also in Nicaragua, you have the Contras being funded by uh, the drug trade, by cocaine coming into the United States, um, which is, it's just something that, like, people know is happening, right? I think a lot of people figured it was happening intuitively. But yeah. the mainstream media in the U S especially has just this vested interest in denying it. Deny, deny, deny. Um, And, you know, in the eighties, when it was happening, they're like, Oh, that's a kooky conspiracy theory. Um, I'm reading a book about this now, but the 10 years later in 96, Gary Webb breaks this story um, where he gets information about the, the cocaine trade and, and um, they're like, Oh, this is a huge revelation. That's, that people are kind of freaked out for a second. They don't know what to do when, when the story breaks and then slowly, but surely or not so slowly. Really. They just launch a, uh, a smear campaign against this guy. Uh, he ends up killing himself in 2004, but in killing himself. Uh, yeah. Uh, but in 98, the CIA releases an internal uh, reports and they admit to it. And yeah. the press just ignores the report. It's like the CIA admitting to uh, knowing about the drug trade, knowing that the contras were funded by coke that was coming in to the U.S. and creating the crack epidemic, and they just kind of brush by it. They're like, "Yeah, let's let's uh, maybe maybe somewhat, but Gary Webb's exaggerating." That's their main takeaway. Um, he so I guess, admitted. Like, circling back,
0: was that he admitted? Oh my God, he
2: admitted. He admitted. Jeff. <laughs>
1: you have no good car ideas like stealing the cars. <laughs> right. Okay.
2: But you have the, the yeah the car theft happening, too, and it's all being done. You know, if it's discovered well, first it's denied. Then if it's discovered, it's rationalized. Um, so I, like what are some of the ways that this gets rationalized in the eyes of um, sort of the people in power in, in the U.S. and Mexico for the greater good of fighting communism?
3: Well, at this point, I will say at this point, like, most of the armed rebellion is, like, put down by the end of the 70s. Uh, like, it's pretty much, like, there are lingering groups, but that chapter of, like, massive armed guerrilla movements uh, calms down for a while. And it really is this cartel stuff that takes over. And it's mostly, like, it's rationalized in this and just, like, the impunity of the ruling class where, like, they are rich and they're in control and they'll do what they want. I mean, like there, there was this campaign of also creating this distance between the ruling class and the narcos. But like th- at this point, there's a, a very common idea of like the narco state that like, there is no differentiation di- differentiation between the two. Right. Um, but I think like, like, at the, I, I don't know what it was like at this point, but from personal experience, a lot of people in Mexico are quite politically apathetic because, Um, the corruption is so blatant and it's so in your face that the the illusion isn't even like tenable to say like that we have any control. Like uh, people are really disengaged from a lot of politics or had been in the past. I think it's changing. So I think some of it was just knowing that, you know, like I can do fuck all to change any of this. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I, I think that's kind of how, like in, in like the popular mind, it gets, really like rationalized or just like ignored. And I think like a lot of the the the, the depth of, of like the killings at the hands of like the military and the cartels, it's like, it just hadn't come to light yet. Like not all of it, like even again, like with Ayotzinapa people started digging up these huge pits. And the thing is like, there are decades of pits full of dead people all over the country and no one knows where they belong. And it's just like, they've been quiet secrets, you know? Um, and the, I guess the other the important thing to mes- like, mention is that like Pemex plays a huge role in that like uh, Mexican oil was nationalized after the revolution uh, and they become like like Pemex becomes really important for the U.S. as well, because a lot of oil moves up into the United States. And because of its corruption, it also helps facilitate the movement of drugs into into the U.S. at certain points. Um, mm-hmm. And. I guess I don't know what I'm saying about that, but it's just like, it's so, again, it's like, it's so interlinked that it's, it's like,
0: well, when you read, that's yeah. a, like, I think you probably asked a pretty complicated question because I mean, you could ask the same question about, you know, what the fuck happened to that same area oh. of thought in this country over, you know, that, over those last few decades of the 19th or the 20th century. And like answer is this weird complicated end of history shit that you see yeah. culminating in like AMLO, you know, where like all right. t- finally something happens to where people are kind of like, cause like a lot of people in Mexico said that like, you know, first of all, AMLO ran a bunch of times. Right. And then also like everyone knows everyone, every, all this shit is happening. Everything knows everyone's corrupt, but there's this like, um, You know, this stasis that everything enters into where everyone just gets kind of cynical or whatever. And that's like largely true in this country, too. Maybe a byproduct of history more than even the specific place and time we're talking about.
2: Well, I mean, I guess I guess what I'm getting at and this is, you know, just from reading this book, which is focused on like the Washington press corps, is that in the 80s, there was this really big push from the government, from the CIA, Defense Department. Uh, of perception management. I think there was even a a department that was known as perception management because you had the press corps in the 70s that was being too aggressive towards Nixon. You know, they broke the Watergate scandal, which kind of a drop in the bucket when you think of all the terrible shit that, you know, the White House and all these agencies have done. But by the 80s, they're like, we got to get control over the press corps, right? We have to make sure they're not asking the tough questions. Uh, so you have this whole department that's dedicated to that's to suppressing dissent really in the US. and it but it's all done in a, you know, seemingly democratic, just humdrum way. Uh, but really, it's a very regressive, repressive regime in the. US that is suppressing this information that we're talking about in in mexico as well as in nicaragua and all all sorts of places from getting out and really being discussed uh especially in the u.s but it's it's sort of sounding like in mexico people may have been more aware of it but just sort of uh resigned to it it not really changing
3: i I would say yeah and uh, you know uh, that's something i guess i i I think that's part of it i don't think it's the whole story the other thing is that like so the mexico has a history at this point and like a Uh, a really high um, murder rate for journalists, like one of the highest in the world. And one of the first major high profile journalist killings is perpetrated by the DFS in 1985 of a man who like had kept extensive like files. And like, I mean, his book is one of my sources in terms of like, I mean, literally just the CIA in Mexico. Like he did extensive reporting on the relationships because he was one of the people that put forth that the CIA's relationship is like, puts Mexico's sovereignty at risk. Uh, He, like, had quite a lot of information about, like, the cartel and DFS's relationship to the Contras, about this episode where, like, Mexican arms were, they attempted to transport them to Poland to give to Solidarity. Um, And this guy is assassinated in 1984, actually, sorry, um, I think, at the hands of two DFS members, and they raid his office, this is important, and take all of his files, and they haven't appeared since, obviously. Um, and, and this, this pattern, like even before him, they were like, I think attempted to firebomb one of like the papers he worked for. Um, and (laughs) after that, like journalists die all the time in Mexico and it's a dangerous profession for that reason where it's just like, if you report on this, like more or less people know what's going on, but once you start providing specific details and lobbying around accusations like your life is at risk
0: and imagining them torturing the bumblebee guy. When he's like yeah. the news announcer in The Simpsons. <laughs> yeah. Cutting off fingers and shit.
3: Um, and I think, I mean, honestly, that's like been one of the most effective tools is, is like, you know, it's intimidating to fight the establishment in Mexico. And it is it is like, uh, your life is on the line if you're a journalist. And then like, there's a lot of amazing reporters who have, in spite of that, have published and kept publishing. A lot of them have died. Some of them are still alive, but their lives are perpetually at risk. Um, in an environment like that, like it's just hard to want to
1: push. Yeah, and this is why Substack is important. (laughs) You can sign up for a newsletter and get quality files before these people have their limbs ripped off and rearranged.
0: Yeah, it kind of feels like some of the stuff that the CIA is, you know, well, it's I guess uh, fairly obvious, but up to in a place like Mexico, even being pretty close to, you know our own country or whatever here in the u.s uh there's just this it's i mean it's almost like similar to what you see happening with the free trade stuff where you know as soon as you cross that border if you're operating in a different space they don't give a fuck they don't have to abide by certain rules in uh in mexico because you know yeah i I don't think the cia could maybe get away with operating as brutally out in the open back on home turf you know
3: and, and, yeah, and then, like, I, it's important to highlight that in, like, more current times, uh, Obama and Calderón signed a cooperation agreement that basically gave the CIA, like, explicit free reign in the country. Um, I don't know what the status of that know. right now, but, like, it was to fight the drug war, but this like it was, of course, like, some kind of, yeah. um, you know, joint agreement, like, intelligence agreement. Um, and that's part of why at least the intelligence community was pissed when Trump was, I mean, like, calling Mexican rapists and they got offended because they were, like, ending that relationship, which is weirdly a good thing that (laughs) result of like him ruining that relationship because like American intelligence is just so intelligence and military has had maybe such access to Mexico that again it's like state sovereignty at some points becomes like an iffy thing at
1: like at at a certain level. So this was finally circled back to the purpose of this podcast, which is supporting the decisions of President Trump. (laughs) (laughs) We have to
2: stop the steal. Pardon, Um But so I'm just trying to stop like, the
0: world from killing itself. He tweeted that <laughs> last night in the middle of the night. It was awesome.
2: Oh my god! <laughs>
0: um, I
2: like how he's beginning his pre- his tweets now with so.
0: Yeah, he's completely losing his mind. It's fucking incredible. He's tweeting in the second person. He keeps going, like, So you found yourself, uh, you know, (laughs) losing an election, even though you won it. What do you do? Or whatever. It's fucking crazy. You might ask how I got here. Yeah.
3: And then just, I I have to, I have like a hard out in like 20 minutes.
0: Yeah, we should wrap up. We're pretty close to where we should be. Uh,
2: Yeah. But what what should we uh, sort of close on with the.
3: I guess, I guess I'll talk about, like, so the DFS, the storied organization, ends in, like, 1985. Um, and this is important because they they um, torture and kill an American DEA agent. And that is what the first episode of Narcos Mexico is about. And importantly, uh, differing accounts say that there was CIA in the room or that they specifically were torturing an American DEA agent, which is, like, fucking weird and crazy that the CIA is torturing a DEA agent in Mexico on their behalf for like drug running. And it's just like, shows just the confusing bewildering nature and power of like, the CIA and just how like, I don't know, it's something like it's just another world, but um, I guess one of the the things I'd say to end on is like Mexico is a narco state. Those cartels, uh, more than a few of the founding members of some of those came out of the DFS a lot of their methods are similar to like the training that the DFS had in terms of how to torture uh, their tactics are similar in disappearing people. Um, and I guess the, there's, there's a, a, an amazing quote. I, I'd like to say it like Porfirio Diaz, not a fan, but he said, um he said like, Oh, poor Mexico. So far <laughs> from God. So close to the United, so States. Close
0: to the United States. I was going to say that earlier. Yeah. Oh, and man. it's
3: every time I read this, it's that just plays in my head where it's like, fuck, man. Like, I don't I don't understand what Mexico is without the United States. Like the, I can't understand them apart because they're so tied together.
0: Well, right. th- that's a really actually this is a really good place to kind of put a button on this because um, I think to really understand the history of the Mexican government, it's to you you have to understand it in relation to the United States, which is why that's such a great quote from perfio diaz because yeah. you know even with with drawing a line from this modern you know weird deep state shit and the cartels and stuff all the way back to the revolution I think it illuminates some things that um, contradict some conventional wisdom that people might have about, like, for example, the big drug cartels down there, right? There is kind of this weird xenophobic, just cloudy image of, like, these drug cartels in Mexico. They're ten times scarier than they are anywhere else in the world and stuff, and they, you know, must just be pirates. They must just have come from you know oh it's it's a it's a younger state than us so it's you know yeah. they still just have these like roving barbarians and this is just a it's modernization just the
2: aztecs. The yeah
3: aztecs started yeah
0: these... ripping hearts out <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> putting, putting
3: cocaine in
1: sending the body out. playing that it's in the water down there
0: <laughs> playing that yeah, soccer yeah. game with a severed head or whatever oh, that we yeah. proto basketball game um and, you know, that kind of never sat right with me learning about that growing up in Texas because, uh, you know, it's this popular mythology that goes around. It's just like, oh, man, it's like everything's so fucking corrupt over there and so crazy or whatever. And, like, corruption is half of the story, right? But the other half is, you know, why is uh, – why, why did something like a drug trade come into a position to gain this much power on the sidelines of this fight between – Labor, which has been a constant since the revolution, since you know anyone brought up the concept of land reform, all the way up through the CIA, you know, having an appendage and putting down students that are carrying on this thing that they're just trying to extinguish from history forever. The answer is there, right? It's not just fucking pirates.
3: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. and again, like you'd mentioned earlier, Anders, it ties into what happened in like the rest of Latin America and the CIA's just meddling and everything and yeah. I, I like i will say that you know it's like mexico's a big ass country it's not like all of the the government or the country captured by the us but it, you you can't understand one without the other like these in relationships are so intimate right um, and it's just like even i mean going back to like why i was interested it's like l- like why so many of us ended up here it's just like how could we not when this country is just like drinking up so much of its like southern neighbor yeah and and like Causing such fucking havoc it's like Obviously like that that state Like narco violence is State violence if not state terrorism And the U.S. has some Arguable Like arguable levels of responsibility like not none Like moderate to intense Responsibility for something Mm -hmm.
1: More than none
0: (laughs) (laughs) And I think maybe third thing right Bigger picture than just Wait a minute when you understand Mexico You have to understand it in the context of the United States Like the ultimate lesson there is that to understand like, you know, any history, you have to understand it in the context of like the rest of the world, you know, this, like all this stuff is international. And that's such a big roadblock. When you talk to like people in America, uh, who are just kind of stuck in like the sort of, you know, liberal ideology or something like that. It's so often not the whole story, you know, everything's like
2: states and borders just were there time immemorial and you can, Analyze each government or, or country in a vacuum. Yeah. yeah,
3: and like that's a good point because it's like, how can you understand the U.S., especially the Southwest, without understanding Mexico?
0: Well, it's crazy that this isn't as common knowledge to people in America because, like, I mean, literally, like, what is what is the difference between Texas and Mexico? Really, I mean, yeah. they're very close land masses, and the, all this shit is related. All this stuff that we're talking about has roots across the border. And this is like as if the CIA was operating in this way and the imperial interests of the United States were operating this way in like fucking New Mexico or something or Arizona, we would all think it was fucking insane. Right. But that border just (laughs) fucking makes it imaginary.
1: And it's the difference between Texas and Mexico, uh, in terms of the CIA is they have a map with don't mess on Texas and do
2: mess on (laughs) Mexico. True. Yeah. (laughs) Um,
3: I'm I'm not the first one to make this ob- observation obviously but like with all this Russia like fear it's obviously just a projection of what the US has done to the rest of the world of us thinking right. that's going to happen to us because we like we have meddled so much in not just Mexico but Latin America in in ways that like yeah I mean even the the slightest fear of it sends this country into a fucking like hissy fit
0: yeah it's like yeah. doth and protest too much sort of shit <laughs>
2: And now we're out of excuses, right? The uh, Soviet Union is gone and uh, people largely accept that the killing, you know, the, destroying the drug trade could easily be done by legalizing drugs. I think that's pretty much a, a popular opinion now um, around the world even. So like, yeah, they're out of excuses and yeah. it is important that people learn this history so, you know, we can do something about the the impact it, it's had on the present. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, we want to probably go ahead and round out here. All right. Yeah. Well, in All <laughs> uh,
3: from God so close to the United
0: States. So yeah. So far from God, so close to the United States. God, that's such a good quote. I think about it all the time.
3: I know. Uh well, I mean, thanks for having me on. There's like so there's so much we didn't talk about and so many niche episodes like like the Oswald stuff and the Falcon and the Snowman and like fucking like, yeah, it's a history. Just anyone, here's the thing. You can Google most of this and there's plenty in English, maybe not as much as like as in Spanish, but like it is accessible if you're interested and you can find out about it. And it's, once you read it, it it is like a holy shit moment.
0: Uh, Oh, what I was going to say is (laughs) when we were talking about the Falcon and the Snowman, if you want to learn about that story, this sort of interesting, you know, it could have been like an action but mo- what was it it was a fucking movie um this story about yeah. these two people getting tortured by the uh the Mexican government and then, like thrown over the border to the CIA there's a Sean Penn film from like the 80s about it uh yeah. I, I haven't huh. seen it
1: <laughs> what's How it available is information in english on these topics there are at least two movies and probably more <laughs> yeah the falcon i could the i snowman.
3: mean I had I, I put some of this aside because it is a bigger project for me, but I could try to compile some of the stuff I've read, and like, if people wanted links, I could send them to you guys.
0: All right. Cool. Well, if you're listening, you know, keep an ear out for that sort of stuff. Maybe we'll talk about some more on the show. Maybe read some uh, Francisco stuff. Uh, but let's go ahead and do some plugs and get on out of here. Francisco, where can our listeners follow you and read you and all that stuff?
3: Uh, I am a, a photography Instagram right now because I like photography. It's <laughs> FJP underscore photo. Uh, otherwise, don't Wait, find. Sorry,
2: shut it again. You, you cut out for a second there. Oh, it's like f. It's FJB underscore
3: photo with an F. Uh, outside of that, I don't really have social media. Uh, don't find me. Don't at me. Not right. on Twitter. <laughs> leave me alone. Wow.
0: All right, we'll leave them alone.
3: I might be later. It's just right now. That's how I feel.
0: Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Perfectly reasonable. Anybody else? Uh,
2: if you yes, keep an ear out for our our bonus episode that we may do with francisco in the future on patreon uh pa Damn america and if you want to learn more about this history we did an episode a few months ago about the mexican-american war which is the reason why a huge chunk of the united states is the united states and not mexico because it used to be mexico so find that on patreon i'm at andersley here on twitter Dursley on Instagram, and uh, we may be doing, keep an eye on our, our Twitch channel as well, because we may have some some fun stuff there as well.
3: Can I can I say one final comment? Just tiny. Go ahead. Francisco, yes. <laughs> um, if, you, if your name is Eduardo and you stole a Russian satellite in the 50s and you're alive, <laughs> I, we would love to talk to you. Yeah. So yeah, Please contact us.
1: If you're listening, if you made it through plugs, yeah, <laughs> please, please contact us. <laughs> If you didn't turn off like when we were like asking out loud if it was time for plugs, (laughs) you got to call it. Well, we can edit that part out.
0: No, (laughs) we will not. This will all – nothing. All right. (laughs) Damn
1: it. (laughs) All right. I have a big plug. Okay. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Patak Jokes. I am taking a break because I am finishing up season two of the hit radio drama, Theater of Delights. Aaron Brock a Grinch. What if Aaron Brockovich had to catch the Grinch because a corporation was hiding it? A whole new season, six full episodes in surround sound debuting on Wednesday on the Theater of Delights stream. Available wherever podcasts are sold. Go listen to that. All
0: oh, that's right, That's it for me. Okay, uh, plugs, I'm at feral jokes and everything, my Twitter's a nightmare, you know that, Um, follow me if you dare, I don't know, Um, we have new merch coming out soon, I mean the shirt's printed, but uh, you'll see the logo and stuff if you follow us online, I have some stickers, I'm trying to figure out what the fuck to do with those, if you can sell stickers by themselves, if I throw them, I don't know, Uh, what else, listen to my other podcast, why you mad. Um, and another thing I wanted to promote, which will be in the show notes here, is uh, a GoFundMe because we live in a country with, you know, health care um, for uh, a, a comedian friend of mine who is uh, very funny um, and very I can't tell exactly what's going on with her. So it sounds like. Here's the thing. If you know Ashley Barnhill, who is a comic, used to be from Austin, and now now an L.A. comic, she's got a very fucked up sense of humor. So I can't tell entirely, but it looks really bad. I think this might be due to her own sense of humor. The GoFundMe is called Team Ashley Skull Fund. I think she got hit by a fucking car, and it looks pretty bad. And apparently, she needs a a skull. Um, (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah. If you
1: have extra skull
0: no you need to send money bones are not their money don't do the bones of their money thing um yeah please throw some money at ashley barnhill because uh she has a gofundme to replace i think part of her skull i don't think there's such thing as a skull replacement surgery i think she just wanged her head and needs uh needs hospital bills covered so yeah throw some money at that that's my plug for the week skull fund it's at go dot gofundme.com slash f slash ashley skull go fund, fund. Go, it's funny i mean it's not funny it's 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 bad when bad things happen to comedians but it, you know they, at least they're funny about it
1: it's a url that makes you smile
0: <laughs> <laughs> how about ashley's skull <laughs> all right um that's the episode this week oh and also yeah if you want to learn more about the mexican revolution I, we also did an episode about the mexican revolution at one point where we got really oh, right. into madero's weird occult interests and stuff with the guy from um what's it black banner Nestor? yeah Nestor. all right that's it it's it's finished fin- Es finito